Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietri. Now, when we had Jim Mosley on separately, and we had Alan Greenfield on separately, I asked them a question. Back in the mid-60s, we all took a trip to the Midwest, culminating in a visit to the farm of the late Ray Palmer. Okay, But we met up with a number of people prior to that, including in a hotel room, Jacques Vallée. Now, Jim doesn't remember this, right? Um, not offhand, no. Alan, you do remember it. Yes, I remember it in detail. In fact, may I do a little bit of the backstory so that it will make uh, context? Please. Don't please. make it over two hours, all right? Actually, it's going to be two hours and three minutes. Go ahead. Just Alan. my usual brief assertion of the backstory. So lean back, relax, and we go back. Uh, putting Gene and I up to going to 1536 Connecticut Avenue, Washington, D.C. At that time, Zone 6, for those who remember zones, which are few and far between, uh, in order to prevail upon Major Keyhole and uh, Dickie Tricky Hall, who asked me to take him off um, my mailing list, which... I obligingly did since I have no mailing list as such. But uh, in any case, that's just recently, by the way. People that hold grudges hold grudges for a long time. That was way back in the middle of the last century. Anyway, Gene and I and one of his friends from the peace movement and Marty Salkind. Uh, yeah, Marty Salkind. Yes, and uh, there was somebody else with us too. Marty and I uh, sort of uh, got. Uh, that's unimportant. But the point is, we Rick Hilberg was he with us? Yes, Hilberg was with us, and uh, that's important because this is all prequel. We got essentially thrown out of the NICAP office. Uh, that was the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, not to be confused with the NICAP, the non-existent NICAP on the X-Files, which is sort of based very, very, very loosely on that since they're pro-contactee on the X-Files. And one thing that NICAP definitely wasn't was pro any kind of UFOs were real but they could not land that was the NICAP principle they there was once an land. article that someone wrote how close will Major Donald Kehoe allow a UFO to get well he, he's currently decomposing and not available for comment so what can we actually in the Loray caverns they've preserved him it's sort of like the Integratron anyway that's not important what is important is so we were deciding whether to picket the building I think that was Marty's idea it was big in Washington in those days or to call Ray Palmer I don't know what the thinking was but that's the kind of logic that we used in those days so we called Ray Palmer indignantly and complained and poured our soul out how the, we were just there to talk which is true and that that Hall was fascistic in his approach and and Palmer out of nowhere because this just didn't happen said well why don't you guys come out here and we went Whoa, and said yes. By the way, he and also wrote an article in his magazine, Flying Saucers, called No Investigations Can Actually Proceed, which, of course, can be summarized as NICAP. 
and well it should be, yes, and also how it was an organization organized by the CIA, et cetera, et cetera, which after talking to Dewey Fournay many years ago about what the CIA's conclusions about ufology being a threat and uh, a potential source of the red menace uh, that uh, was then supposedly around. In any case, I, I, I would say that's not utterly, utterly impossible, although who, who knows, and at this point, who cares? The point is, a couple of months later, in October of 1965, the reason I remember is also the month I lost my virginity, but that's in Asheville, North Carolina, if anyone is really interested. <laughs> details. What was her name, by the way? Her phone number? Site. What? what? <laughs> in any case... <laughs> Oh, no, the woman is long dead, and she's no longer speaking. But uh, the real point of this is that Jim and yes. you and I think Hilberg. No, 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 it was Dale Reddick, wasn't it? Oh, he, yeah, he lived in Chicago, and I... I think Hilberg was there, too. Decided to, yes, I believe so, uh, and he would know, and he is certainly available for comment. Went to Chicago, stayed at the Chicago Hilton, if I recall correctly, and we decided to, as long as we were going to be there, and we were, yeah, I mean, uh, Palmer lived out in the middle of North, North Jesus, Wisconsin, so it was, it was kind of a, you know, Chicago was the closest place that we could come, that we would have a sort of mini-meeting there, and uh, the following happened. Uh, we got in touch with Jacques Vallée, and he came over to our, um, I believe it was Jim's hotel room, in fact, and uh, he had just begun work on his second book, which was Challenge to Science. Was that the name of it? I don't remember, but he, he only had the manuscript in French, and I remember him giving it to Jim under the assumption that Jim had some vague idea, and I remember exactly what Jim said as he thumbed through this thing. Well, my French is a little rusty, which um, I thought was an interesting comment. And we had a long conversation with Valet. Um, it was very literate, very friendly, and supposedly we were supposed to um, also see Dr. Heineck, who was then A, alive, and B, in, uh, in Chicago. But that was never arranged, however, he did call us together in a kind of a conference call in one of the hotel rooms, or I think maybe we hooked up three of the hotel rooms with him, and we, we talked to Dr. Heineck on the phone. Then we went the next day and uh, to Wisconsin, went up to Palmer's, interviewed Palmer. I still have a photo or two from that. Actually, I have a photo of Eugene sticking a microphone in Palmer's uh, face. And, well, that's uh, the first of several interviews I did with Palmer, you know. Later on, I appeared on some national radio shows and arranged for Palmer to be interviewed and probably was the last person to interview him before he died in the 1970s. That's not important. Uh, can important I interrupt? Point is, yes, can Jim, I interrupt? Does that uh, joggle just, your memory well, at all? Or is this still completely blank? I had a question. Yes. Uh, wasn't uh, Ray Palmer at the uh, convention that fate held in Chicago? In yes, 19... but that was, that was over uh, ten, 10 years later. That was okay, years that later. was the second time that I met Palmer and uh, Palmer was you, there Arnold was there and spurned you and I remember that my were you there uh, 
Uh, well, I was there standing with you most of the time um, okay. and, until you went off chasing Margaret Mead down the street. That was. Yeah, I remember. Now, that I do remember. Yes, you were the one that said to me, that's Margaret Mead, and she was teeing out the door at high speed. Yeah, I really did uh, chase her down the street and spoke to her extremely briefly, and she went on her way. Yes, I was, uh, I was a great admirer of Margaret Mead, and meeting her for 10 seconds was better than not meeting her at all. I knew that at one point in your life you had been a bit of an autograph hound, and we were talking in the usual way that we would talk, and I said, no, look, it's Margaret Mead, because she had on that, you know, the late period in her life she was sort of into a lot of weird stuff and she had on this witchy looking thing on her and you said Margaret Mead I love Margaret Mead and she was going like 90 miles an hour and you went off chasing her and I sort of walked behind you at a, at a much more leisurely southern Alan Greenfield lazy pace and I thought well this is the gym of probably when he was 16 or 17 he probably is going to ask her for an autograph and you know I always have thought of you as the famous person, right? And uh, there you were, the, suddenly the kid going, oh, Margaret Mead, like some people would go for uh, Jimmy Page or Elvis or whatever. So I thought that was a very touching uh, moment. And well, Chris, right now, if you get an autograph from Elvis, it's going to be a very intriguing, rather dusty autograph, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I get a lot of those. Right. <laughs> the, the, God. The, the, I hear dead, crickets. The dead often autograph their books, and their signatures are remarkably oh. similar to my own. You know what's also <laughs> interesting is why is it that dead people who were famous when they were living often make more money as dead people than as living people? I don't know, but the day I, I can tell you. Wait a minute, I can tell you why their their living expenses are lower. You silly man. No, 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 it isn't that. It's just that they can't sign any more autographs, and suddenly their autograph becomes um, much more valuable, and their books uh, take on a certain value, too. I mean, on the other hand, uh, certain authors are dependent on being out there on the circuit, and they are quickly forgotten when gone, alas. I have one of the gems that I have for sale that is expensive by definition, and I can't, you know, let it go for anything less. But I've had no offers on it. I have all of Jim Keith's books because we used to autograph books together. Had the same publisher in the days of Illuminate Press, and and uh, Keith, of course, died under mysterious circumstances, et cetera. But he wrote a UFO book under a pen name called uh, J. Katz. It was called Saucers of the Illuminati, right down my alley. And I had some little influence with him on the direction of the book. But uh, since we had the same publisher, and uh, the publisher sent me an advance proof copy of that in oh, 1993, which is, what, 15 years ago or more, and um, I have that proof copy, and it is up for sale, but, of course, it's probably one of one. <laughs> you, know, you know, what's point. interesting here is that we've segued away from the original discussion, which, of course, is that well, we had I a long talk with Jacques Vallée, and, and Jim, you don't remember any of that. I remember it that I put it in context. I guess sure. that's the question that you wanted to get to. Right. Jim? Because you and I remember. That's Very distinctly. Yes, and it's coming back slowly. If you well, talk long enough, it'll it'll come back completely. Well, yeah. we don't have a four-hour show today, though. Uh-huh. Well, well, I, let me let me get a question in here about Please. ballet. So, at the time, 
this is really sort of the peak of Valet's visibility. Had he yet earned the scorn, from what I gather, of a bunch of the quote-unquote mainstream UFO researchers because of his gradual move away from the extraterrestrial hypothesis to perhaps something more arcane? Or was that before he revised some of his thoughts about the topic? They loved him until Passport to Magonia, which was well after that period, that okay. he was one of the few scientists with legitimate credentials that worked with other scientists with legitimate credentials. He and Heineck had uh, some kind of uh, uh, professional relationship as well, and that was right during the period when Heineck was still under contract to the Air Force. It was just the very end of that. We're talking October 65, and again, I, you know, <laughs> I remember distinctly when it was because of other events in my life, but... Uh, this was between Anatomy of a Phenomenon, his first book, which was a very conservative pro-UFO book, as these things go, and then the second book, which he co-wrote with his uh, wife, which the name keeps coming and going, and then he wrote Passport to Magonia. Passport to Magonia was the cutoff point where it was the sort of the acid test, no pun intended whatsoever, between those who thought that you could find something in the UFO mystery that went well beyond uh, the uh, the conventional ETH, which was mm -hmm. the popular, uh, um, the near universal, near dogmatic theory uh, of supposedly pro-UFO circles at that time, uh, other than you know, people who were really off the deep end. Hey, and, let me just uh, tell our listeners before we progress to Jacques Vallée, and we'll explain why in a moment. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y. California 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1 888 UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, 
send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On the Paracast, we're talking with Alan Greenfield, Jim Mosley, stars all in the UFO and paranormal research fields. And, and Tim or, Beckley, he just isn't replying. Right, Tim <laughs> Beckley is, is quiet. But we're talking about our remembrances of Jacques Vallée, which is more important now, of course, because Jacques was a guest on the Paracast just a few weeks ago. And we can reveal now that in one of our near-term shows, which will happen hmm, just around the first week of June... You're going to hear Jacques Vallée again. Hmm. Well, that's that's uh, a scoop worthy of your self-promotion, but that's uh, absolutely correct. And I, I I look forward to that program the way I look forward to each and every one of your paracasts. But uh, I should say this: oh. in his memoir of that particular meeting. The only person he mentions is Jim Mosley. You know, I, I, a habit I acquired from uh, 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 Commander Mosley uh, is uh, clearly to look to the index of a book first to see where your own name is. I go for E's, he goes for the M's. And he came out with a book that was somewhat autobiographical, so I don't even remember what the book was. It didn't matter. I wouldn't buy it because my name wasn't mentioned. But there was a mention of a meeting in Chicago in October of 65, and that's 1965, the previous century. And uh, uh, we being immortal uh, were there. And um, We're all Highlanders, by the way. We have to cut people's heads off to stay alive. Uh, no, 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 that's a different mythos. The Highlander, the uh, you know, that's uh, besides. Uh, anyway, and the, the important thing is he said he had a meeting, more or less, this is what we call a semi-quotation, with Jim Mosley and others. So being reduced to an and others, I spited him and showed him by not buying the book. So he can just Which book is it. this so I don't buy it? I don't remember the name of it, nor would I be disposed to reveal it, since my name isn't in it. I'm just an other, <laughs> as are you. So oh, and didn't didn't he also have a book of some sort that was essentially a diary, day by day? Is that the same book? That's the book. Yes, I remember seeing it, and my name was in it, just as you say. You have a phenomenal memory. I uh, No, I have no life, therefore, yes, these things uh, are the entire... <laughs> I was thinking that, yes. Yes, well, but you were too polite to... <laughs> I'm about ready to do imitations of Tim Beckley's voice and be him virtually for this roundtable. Should I do Please don't. don't. Don't do that. Let him continue in silence for once in his life. Oh, boom, boom. Okay. He was the only one in Central Park that didn't have a switchblade. That's all I can say. <laughs> Hell, does that mean? Well, it means that uh, Gene and I and uh, who else was it? And some other weird New York person. One of our New Year's Eve things, we decided to go over and see Jim Rigberg. And it was directly across the park, and it was near midnight on New Year's Eve. And we thought, well, we'll just cut through the park, right? And then it occurred to us that was the period where, as Rigler put it, 
the boys take over the park around mm. midnight. Got it. So we started to sing little songs from, uh, let's see, I think it was from West Side Story, you know, the one that goes, I believe it's named Cool Cool. It was by Leonard Bernstein. My bird is actually snapping his fingers. It's, well, not literally, but I mean, it's making a sound too. Okay, well, in any case, and we were flipping open switchblades. I, think I didn't we have were, a switchblade, by the way. You did have one, yeah. I did? I'll believe that when I see pictures. I never had a switchblade. There was no pictures. We never passed anyone except one little old lady who was walking this poodle, and she looked at us strangely. All right. Now, we, we have gone so over the edge here that we we have to come back. I promised and, my readers that we were going over the edge today, and oh, therefore... I see. I see. Revealing uh, everything. Uh, Really? So, okay, quick question, just to, because ballet is obviously a topic of great degree of interest in people who follow the subject. What do you, Jim Mosley, and you, Alan Greenfield, think about how ballet sort of pulled away from the field at a certain point? What do you feel, why do you feel that happened? And what are your thoughts about the things that he said right at the end of when he was very publicly visible? Do you think that the extraterrestrial hypothesis that he was so comfortable with originally early on in his writings uh, is still as strong as it was then or do you think maybe Valet really was on to something? Are you asking me? Yeah, let's start with you, Jim. Age before beauty. It's relatively brief. I think any real intellectual who spends a lot of time on this subject as Valet did and Heineck also whose views I remember more clearly Certainly, sooner or later, they're going to get beyond the extraterrestrial theory and get into something weirder and more uh, complex. And I think that was to the credit of both of them. And, of course, uh, these days, now that I have access to the net, although, thank God, I'm not actually on the net, but people send me endless stuff, and uh, you see a lot of... uh, Good theorizing and horrible theorizing, but people like this uh, Max Tones or somebody. Max Tones, yes. Yes, yes. Have you had him on? He's quite a... He's a great guy. Yeah, he must be. Yes. Yes. He is a a very deep thinker and comes up with a a lot of good theories. I think the extraterrestrial hypothesis uh, should be dead. I don't suppose it is, but... uh, it's not the answer, folks. Uh, I suppose Alan would agree, uh, agree with me also. Uh, it's just not the answer. I'm finished. Okay. Now, my point of view is this, going back to Belay. I mean, my opinions where you folks are concerned are complex, but I'm not a scientist and I have no reputation. You're not a scientist? No, I'm, I'm just uh, 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 a, a, <laughs> oh, common, a common criminal <laughs> attempting to do what Dr. Stranges has attempted to do for many years, to be at one with the spirit of the public who supports our efforts. But that's right. beside the point. <laughs> what I truly mean is this. If one does have orthodox credentials to begin with, 
one is going to get a lot of publicity as you start out, and generally speaking, up to a certain point in, in the development of ufology theory, if we may glorify it with that term, it was invariably some variation of the, of the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Right. Right. At some point, if you are a thinking person and if you have investigated this really down to the um, uh, minutia and, and also broadly, I think you, you reach beyond that and you reach a point in which the ETH, as it's conventionally understood in any case, there might be some extraterrestrial factor in it, but clearly we're dealing with something much more paranormal much more consistent with a name like Paracast than like they've landed from Mars, which is what was popular when I got involved in these 48 years ago or whatever it was. At that point, you can do one of two things. Either you can stick with a public face of the ETH and remain quasi-respectable, though that, that was a fair leap and still is a fair leap for, mm -hmm. for Orthodox scientists, or you could take the plunge and do something as Valet did with Passport to Magonia and say, I'm not writing this as a scientist, I'm writing this as an individual who, with a scientific background, and, and take the plunge and, and look into some of the other aspects. Viewed by today's standards, I would say that it's still a conservative book, but it's clearly not an ETH book. It suggests things that go well beyond the extraterrestrial hypothesis. It's an alternate reality type theory. The term Magonia itself it refers to a mythos of an alternate reality. Once you have done that, you are going to be besieged by even the few people in orthodoxy who support you and the broader range of people who are willing to be tolerant of you. And it begins to be thought of as nut science, uh, fringe science, whatever. And if you, you have a career in the scientific community, a career in the academic community, you've got to decide between the two. Are you going to pursue this and become known as just another Velikovsky scientific nutcase and, you know, the, that will be your life? Or do you um, sort of retreat into a more conservative uh, position? It's a very, very tough situation to be in. It's not hard for me. It's not hard for you. It's not hard for, for, for Jim to, to, to venture beyond that. But we don't have anything to lose. Exactly. exactly. We have no we reputation. Have we have no uh, credentials of any importance. And so we can just rave uh, any way that we want. Exactly, and I think that in a sense, if you're not within the strictures of the academic community, you can develop a, a certain respectable following precisely because you simply have the integrity of saying what you really think. And uh, some people will catch that. Some people in the media will catch that. Some will exploit it, but some, good grief, it's become um, on CNN, which is a respectable uh, news source, as these sort of. go. Um, it has become a, a part of their repertoire to, to do uh, pro-UFO or at least uh, a balanced UFO stories all the time now, and the History Channel and the Discovery Channel. And uh, while these are hardly uh, academic magazines, they nevertheless reach a huge public and, and uh, reflect public opinion. And some of their views are absolutely off the wall, even by my standards. So, you know, they'll go a long way out there. But again, they, their, their credentials are in media, not in academia. And I think academia has a, um, 
an underlying quasi-fascist, uh, dogmatic, essentially it's scientism. And while in certain areas you can get away with uh, having, especially in theoretical physics, for example, you can get away with having some pretty esoteric theories about how things work in more um, macrocosmic terms, uh, like something like uh, aliens from another dimension or whatever, even though that might be in agreement with the notion of uh, string theory, multidimensional universes, and so forth, it's a no-no and you lose your grants, you lose your reputation, and you may lose your position. And uh, I think Belay falls into that category. He had to make some decisions, and I don't fault him for perhaps backing off a little bit. It's interesting, too, Alan, is the fact that today you're still hearing a lot of people saying ETH, ETH. And when you talk to people like Stephen Bassett with his disclosure efforts in the ex-conference and everything. We had him on the show, and the second time he was not quite as dogmatic as the first time, but when you ask him about different theories, you know, he says, well, interdimensional, maybe that's a 5% probability. And I said, what? Wait a minute. Where do you base these probabilities on? What evidence do you have? And, of course, it's just arbitrary. He's just making it up as it goes along. But even today, when you say UFOs, people still say spaceships. It's still the prevailing point of view, even though you and I and other people, all of us in this little virtual roundtable, were talking about this stuff years ago. Yeah, that's precisely the case. The theoretical change that has taken place over the last 30, 40 years is that there is more sympathy for uh, the plausibility of the ETH, but, but anything that goes beyond that... Uh, is virtually unknown. The closest you come is something like uh, with Stryber's uh, notion that you never really find out the truth which uh, because it has a million masks and each mask has another mask <laughs> under the mask. And I think that that probably, that probably comes closer to being as much of the truth as we're going to understand. We may be dealing with something that's just beyond our kin. And, and that, that in and of itself may make it impossible to solve. But what you can do, perhaps, is learn to predict the unsolvability. That is, to predict where it reaches the point that it becomes weird, where it goes weird on you, where it ceases to be lights in the sky, ceases even to be little men coming out of, of spaceships and gathering soil samples endlessly forever, because now that seems, you know, within light of the Mars rovers and so forth, and their spectacularly long lifetime, uh, that's not such a hard thing to assimilate. You I think they have enough soil by now. You know, there used to be only two ways, neighbors, to meet for business, over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. 
you're a little arrogant with Jesus and with David the enemy. You never know what's going to happen next. By the way, we have enough of this. We have the PowerCast, and we're talking to Alan Greenfield, author, raconteur. No, I want to go into the other part of the show. We're listening. We're listening. And Jim Mosley. And Jim Mosley. Yes. Now, well, you, did, you a, didn't ex- explain Jim. Huh? Jim needs no introduction. Ah, uh, uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's true. So don't say anything. Real briefly, the thing about soil samples, guys. I mean, it's pretty clear from what we know about scientific method that it makes perfect sense that some non-human species would be interested in collecting soil samples over time if you were trying to gauge major changes in the planet's geological makeup or in if you're trying to study, for example, humans' pollution of this planet, it would make sense to gather samples over time in the same way, and I'm not endorsing this at all, but the idea that you have some sort of non-human entities tracking families, tracking family lines, uh, uh, taking genetic samples over time, that's perfectly consistent with the scientific method of study of trends over time. So I I don't think that's weird in and of itself. You know, the uh, most famous soil sample case uh, that I'm familiar with is one that I, well, didn't take part in, but it occurred just about a mile from where I lived in Hudson County, New Jersey in 1976. I'm sure that you guys remember it. Uh, it was discovered, uh, if you would uh, call it that, by Bud Hopkins. He lived in uh, Greenwich Village, New York, and uh, I think this part is amusing. He had his favorite liquor store that he went to very frequently and uh, not that I'm implying he was a drunk or anything because that's not the point of the story but the night man at this liquor store was a uh, older gentleman named uh, George Barsky and I don't remember all the dates uh, correctly because the sighting occurred several months before it became public. Apparently, Obarski confided this story in his friend uh, Bud Hopkins, and uh, eventually Hopkins uh, persuaded him to uh, go public with it. And then uh, there came, uh, at that point, a very famous article in the Village Voice newspaper in New York, which I had a copy of. It may have disappeared in one of the recent hurricanes, or I may still have it, but that was a detailed explanation, or rather narration, of uh, what Abarski had seen. And what had happened with Abarski, he was driving home to New Jersey at about 2 o'clock in the morning uh, one night, and uh, he got very near his home, which again was near my home. I mean, all of these things were in a small area of a couple of miles. And uh, as he got to a uh, city park there called North Hudson Park, he uh, saw this silent craft land uh, very close to him, and uh, approximately a dozen little men got out with little shovels and uh, little uh, bags of some kind and started taking soil samples and uh, did so for just a very brief period of time and then hopped back into their craft and uh, flew away. 
if I remember the story correctly, Abarsky was naturally amazed by this and wondered if he'd been dreaming, and indeed he might have been, if you want to think of that possibility. But he went home, and the next morning, very early, he went back to the park to see if there were any traces of uh, what he thought had happened, and there were little scoop marks uh, here and there where these uh, creatures had been working. And uh, it goes on from there. Basically, Bud Hopkins seized uh, control of the case. Uh, I saw Avarsky uh, quite a while after the sighting and maybe a couple of weeks after the Village Voice article. And he made it clear that this, uh, was, that his spokesman, you might say, uh, for this case was uh, Hopkins, which makes me wonder if Hopkins may conceivably uh, have invented this uh, and uh, made Abarsky tell it as if it had really happened. But apart from that, I think it's quite probable that it did happen. And then, uh, uh, too bad Tim Beckley isn't here uh, to uh, tell his version of this, but. Again, some months after that, uh, Beckley decided to make a farce out of the whole thing, and uh, he invited a psychic from Chicago, whose name I forget, to come back to North Hudson Park and uh, uh, try to uh, make contact with the spirits of these little men who had landed by that time something like a year previously. And that is a very long story. It, it got into a... Uh, total uh, fiasco and made a farce out of the whole thing but I do think there's a high probability that there was a little man landing just uh, in my part of northern New Jersey and uh, I wish I'd been there that's all I can tell you well I have to tell you this when the Phoenix lights occurred over a decade ago I was in Phoenix but I didn't go outside and I didn't see them so I'm something why because I didn't know till the next day Oh. Like People didn't. Nobody called me up and said, "Gene, look outside. Look wasn't to the skies the for a warning." Whatever. Wasn't it on the news that night? Yes, but we didn't watch the news that night. I think maybe I was busy writing a book or something. I was writing a lot of technology books in those days, and not concentrating so much on UFOs. So I didn't see it. Oh well, that's uh, certainly. What can we say? Well, you know, I mean, since I have a little running map of UFO cases just in the United States, I mean, right now the action is really in the the southwest United States, on south, and hits its peak right now in uh, in Argentina, where they have Mm -hmm. an ongoing flap of tremendous proportions. Uh, There's a gentleman who... uh, translates a great deal of stuff from the Latin American press that uh, does a, um, a great uh, great service in terms of keeping these cases. Uh, Corrales? Uh, yes, Scott uh, yeah, Corrales. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And he, to his credit, he also gives the stories that are turn out to be um, to have conventional explanations and uh, gives those conventional explanations. And in other words, he covers it as a broad range of things. And I don't even think it's his central interest. So. We simply know there's a pattern. My point being that at any given time, there are there are sightings uh, waiting to happen. It's a question of, of looking for them. As to um, the, the soil sampling cases, uh, I don't know if that one is, is, quote, real or not. I do know this. There are so many cases where essentially that same action is repeated in slight variations that one has to wonder whether this is what 
any sort of intelligent creature from another planet, we'll say, would actually be doing repeatedly in exactly the same manner over decades? Or is it what we would expect to see based on our sort of just social mythos of, mm -hmm. of what we might imagine doing? And I tend to think the latter, because if you get close to some of these cases, they take on very bizarre aspects. You don't need to bring in a psychic from Chicago to find those really odd aspects. Some of them are somewhat comic. Some of them are, are, are sort of... Uh, two things that are mutually exclusive seem to be true at the same time. The case is both true and false, and I, I, that would be very difficult to explain briefly, but suffice to say, my conclusion is there's something wrong with the explanation of taking these cases at face value. It's almost as if a play were being played out in front of us, either for our benefit or because of the way our brains process things that really are beyond our can. And um, um, I, I haven't decided on which of those. I think it probably is some combination thereof. But this, uh, this is the science that the late Arthur Clarke des described as a truly advanced science would be indistinguishable from magic. And that, that is where I am on cases of that sort. Well, I, I, what's I, magic yeah, about can, reaching one, for soil samples, though? Well, yeah, but for how long and in what, and in what way? In preparation for... I would say if we were still sending Mars rovers 20 years from now doing exactly the same kind of... Right now we're looking for something that makes a lot of sense. We're looking for water and finding some, which is um, um, has great implications for the long-range future. But 20 years from now, barring nuclear catastrophe or an asteroid hitting the Earth, neither of which I expect, we will probably be landing human beings on Mars. And uh, that once they are there... They'll take soil samples. Well, they'll take soil samples, but they'll also build permanent shelters. Sure. They will, if there are local beings, give, based on the, uh, the the analogy to the discovery of the quote new world, I would say first one, then ten, and then an army. That's just the way exploration takes place. It tends to be first exploration in a, in a very tentative sense, and then broader exploration, and then. Yeah, essentially invasion or colonization. That's very well put. Yeah, I agree with you. Well, I, um, I know that you would you would think, you know, of, of Pizarro. And, I, I mean, in, in other words, some poor schlump from Spain washed ashore in, in the Mayan country uh, about 20 years before the Spanish came in force. And the Mayans obligingly thought that uh, they would honor him by sacrificing him at Tulum and did so. So he was a martyr to the cause. But 20 years later, all of the slaughtering was being done by the, the Spaniards because sooner or later... It's not washing ashore, it's a, it's a probe, and then it's an expedition, and then it's conquistadors, and then it's the entire wretched population of the old world looking, look, looking to be free, to paraphrase. Now, uh, Alan, I want to I kind of key off something you just said. Um, that which is, let, me, let me just finish that. Yeah. That hasn't happened with this. It's the same thing over and over and over. And, over. and that does not fit a pattern that I would recognize. What it fits is a front either intentional or as a byproduct of the way our minds confront that which we cannot fully process. And there are many things that are, that are like that.
Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking with Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, who usually needs no introduction, but it just got one. And, of course, Alan Greenfield, who has written lots of really incredible thought pieces over the years about UFOs and the paranormal, including two books, Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots and The Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And now I think, David, you had a question. Yeah, Alan, I totally uh, appreciate what you said a few moments ago about there being a certain pattern. You have these uh, sort of initial exploratory uh, situations, and then uh, once there's some determination that there's something to exploit, perhaps, then the large, larger groups start coming over, and then we go sort of to the invasion model. All right. Now, you make the point that we have not seen that. Certainly doesn't look like we've experienced that in discussions of UFOs and, you know, looking at the reality of odd beings interacting with humanity over maybe thousands of years would not appear that that pattern is what's happening here. So it doesn't look like there is a sort of a, a rooting out of what is here on this planet and then, oh, look, here's the fleet ready to, uh, to take over the planet. All right, so let's put that aside. What does that leave us then realistically in terms of trying to determine a motive for these beings and in trying to determine where we're possibly at? Because while I would tend to agree with you that, no, there's been no overt invasion, does that mean that there may be there's a possibility that there's a more subtle invasion going on that or maybe we're trying to parse this and comprehend it in the framework of our specific methodology humans methodologies is that a flawed approach yes i believe that is a flawed approach i think if we're dealing with something that is genuinely alien in the the broader sense of that term mm -hmm. we need to essentially not necessarily junk scientific methodology but we need to to junk our models. The, the same things happen over and over in much the same way as, say, a repeater in a... Um, that's why I encourage people who want to pursue ufology to also have a, a, a pretty good knowledge of alleged phenomena that show up in occult circles, which I know a good deal about, and, uh, and the paranormal in, in, in the broader sense of the term. What I'm saying is we need a broader range of background information. Most of us of our generation, if I may so designate it, but even, even people 
people, a lot younger, start out with some version of the ETH. You can't help it. It's, it's, it's pervasive in science fiction. It's pervasive on television. It's pervasive in a lot of places. And um, I know what David is driving at, the infiltration model, which is a totally different thing. Maybe the tutelary in, infiltration model that uh, goes mm-hmm. with the far-sighted, late and lamented uh, Yona Fortner's ideas, which at the time he presented them to me, I thought were a bit off the wall, but a good deal better than his much more famous rival, Von Daniken. But, uh, you know, we should uh, explain to people, before we go on too far here, who was Yona Fortner? Because Yona Fortner was sure. a, a scholar. What his credentials were or weren't are irrelevant. I mean, uh, people in ufology always seem to have doctorates and commanderies. But when I first met him, I was introduced by Jim Mosley, I believe, to, to Yona. Um, I had just gotten back from Israel, and uh, I assure you that Yona had a full command of classical Hebrew, of Aramaic, and so forth. And he had a theory about historical communion between, we'll say, non-human entities and human beings, which uh, would radically reshape ideas about religious entities and uh, is not really as radical today as, as it was when he presented it. But unlike most of his competitors, it wasn't based on the notion that the pyramids had to be levitated into existence or any, any nonsense like that. It was based largely on language. And my linguistic skills are not anywhere near what his were, but I got why he was saying what he was saying. And it amounted to a, a radical reinterpretation of such phrases as uh, ruach, a Hebrew word which can mean anything from soul to wind to power to source power and if you apply it to the famous section in the first part of the book of Ezekiel which has often been noted even by non-UFO enthusiasts as remarkably similar to modern descriptions of UFOs and other parts of the of the uh, the Hebrew scriptures such as the beginning of Genesis where you um, have the universe created by the Ruach Elohim the uh, spirit of the God or uh, as it's usually translated uh, or in the beginning God created or a wind from God there are various translations but none of them compare to the same word being used as the force which kept this contraption described by Ezekiel using the same terminology. And I'm just using this as an example that that, that he himself used with me. If you use it in the same way, the, the whole scriptural thing is a description of some type of object appearing to land and some sort of being coming out. But again, it's the same stuff people are describing now, period, paragraph. Now, if the same thing is happening as a repeater now, you have essentially, in terms of these times, a mere 40 years ago, you have Lonnie Zamora seeing essentially the same thing in the same way, but describing it in space age terms or whatever, you have to start to think, well, why the same thing over and over and over throughout history? Perhaps that is all that we can see of a much broader phenomenon that is going on and that it represents something that goes on throughout history, but that is continuously interpreted in pretty much the same way. The comparison I made was a paranormal researcher who is particularly uh, oriented towards apparition cases, which, alas, there are a lot less working in that area now than there used to be. The repeater is 
the ghost, quote unquote, who keeps doing the same thing over and over as if they were on um, a DVD and they, you just keep playing the same part of the DVD at, at random times over and over. It walks down the staircase and disappears or it scratches its nose and goes poof, whatever it is. It's the same sort of thing. Obviously, whatever underlies that has some quote, reality to it, if multiple people have seen it over a period of years, decades, even centuries in some cases. Obviously, there is no DVD running uh, for years, decades, centuries. Something is going on that is beyond our usual understanding of things, but which is recorded as essentially the same thing going on. What about misdirection, that you draw someone's attention to the soil sample retrieval? And while that's going on, something else is occurring somewhere else, but because your attention is focused on that particular event, that singular event, you don't see it. Well, there's a great deal of difficulty, and I am not absolutely sure about this, but I think although misdirection is definitely a possibility, I know something about the limitations of the human brain to comprehend certain things that are especially very very macrocosmic and very microcosmic. For example, for us to really visualize an electron, nothing like the ping pong balls they show in, in school or the, uh, the, the illustrations, there are no such things no, as electrons. Yeah, yeah. The word thing has an, it is totally irrelevant to the electron, and yet we, it, it's almost impossible, or maybe it is impossible for us to more than mathematically understand that it's a property of motion that nevertheless has for our purposes in a mythological sense the quality of a thing. I'm much more inclined to suspect that this is a, a limitation of the function of our brain and we would have to sort of bypass that to see past the initial, there may be layers of, of misdirection, but whether it's intentional misdirection by something or some things or whether it's just something is occurring and sort of like in Flatland or Sphereland, uh, the, the, the books about essentially about geometry viewed from a uh, um, two-dimensional perspective, looking at three-dimensional geometry, which is an interesting sort of notion. You're only going to see a portion, and what you infer from that is a great deal like um, I compare it to the the, the blind, the well-known thing of the blind, the blind men trying to figure out the elephant from the different parts that they're touching, or Plato's famous uh, people chained up in a cave looking at shadows of the real world outside the cave and trying to infer what that reality is like. Have I lost you folks, or, or are we, we on beam here? No, Jim, no. Jim, you've been silent about this. I, I was almost asleep. I, well, uh, I want you to wake up, and I want you to react to what you heard, because I know you and I and Alan have talked about similar things over the years. So your particular point of view, where does it stand? Now, at some point in time when you first got involved in doing UFO research, of course, you accepted, like I guess a lot of people did, that it was visitations from other planets. At some point, you did adopt the public posture of an Earth theory, which was secret weapons. But that really was kind of a red herring for you. That was yes, well, a game. that was long ago and uh, far away. 
and uh, I gave up the Earth theory uh, fairly quickly. Unfortunately, in having uh, propounded it in the first place, I lost a lot of uh, readers for the early uh, saucer news, and I might have been much better to have just skipped that uh, phase altogether. Well, how Most quickly of, did you give up the Earth theory and go into something a little bit more? Well, I don't, I don't remember a couple of years or something like that. Uh, mostly in the earlier days, I uh, assumed that the UFOs came from Mars because uh, it just seemed reasonable that small humanoid creatures were uh, coming from there. And actually, I was thinking about this just a couple of days ago. I may be wrong about this. Either of you can uh, correct me. But I think it was still, as late as the 50s, reasonable to assume that Percival Lowell was correct in his now well-known fantasy uh, that there were canals on Mars. Uh, therefore, people uh, living there who had built the canals. Uh, is that true? When did the canal theory really hit the dust? Uh, Not until the 1970s when the first Mars lander hit the dust on Mars. But didn't oh, yes, but during the 50s, even Major Kehoe was talking about that. He was Didn't talking about it to anyone. It was still being written about by uh, respectable, quote unquote, uh, people. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, this is my uh, question, really. I mean, a man with a uh, degree in astronomy is far, far beyond me, and there were many people agreeing with him who were also uh, advanced uh, thinkers with advanced degrees, and then, of course, the public followed from that. What I want to know is, looking back, it was, how can we say, the resolution was so poor that it was almost bound to be an optical illusion. How could all of us have made such a horrible mistake for such a long period of time? I just don't understand it. Well, there is Schrodinger's cat, you know. You have, well, actually, the explanation for it is that it is an optical illusion, um, and that is all that it is, because we have a Mars orbiter, which, if you had a computer and were on the Internet, you could, uh, on any given day, see the picture of the day of any portion of Mars, and there's nothing like it. But if you Of course not, but I, I, it doesn't answer the question. Uh, certainly, that's such a simple concept to realize that your resolution is not sufficient and you're just uh, reading into what you see something that you're predisposed to, to assume. Jim, you just explained the UFO mystery. I did. The resolution is not sufficient so you're predisposed into taking what you see and interpreting it as what you know. So yeah. you saw these things on Mars and you said, time. this is what Alan's been saying for quite a bit of time right now, you're inclined to look at those pictures and say, well, they are canals because they resemble yes, canals. But wouldn't it occur to these people uh, that they're, I mean, the obvious fact uh, that the resolution was so bad and everything was so blurry uh, that you're going to see anything that you want to see? I, I can't imagine. I suppose, that. but then you still don't know what they are. So I don't think no, any serious well, scientist said they were canals. If they thought they were canals, they might have said, well, maybe Mars had a civilization at one time, and that's a remnant of it. But even now we're thinking that as we know more about Mars and 
as we study its geological formation, its history based on what limited information we have, we could say, well, maybe in the past it had more of an atmosphere. Maybe it had living creatures. Yeah, but yeah. then it goes to follow that maybe oh, those oh, life forms went gotta, under the surface I, uh, of the planet. I've got to tell you uh, one uh, thing that's uh, rather amusing. Dr. Donald Menzel, who was the original... Uh, well-known debunker of the uh, UFO mystery, and he, of course, was a uh, professor at Harvard University, and I knew him uh, slightly. He was the predecessor to Philip Class, who took over the uh, number one debunking post after Menzel died. But it is not so well known that Menzel had a wry sense of humor, and he also uh, thought of himself as an artist. And uh, I uh, bought three or four of his uh, paintings, the best of which, I don't know, it hopefully is worth more now than the $50 I paid for it many years ago. But it's a, a charming thing. It's a scene on Mars. There is a Martian canal and uh, there is a uh, curved arched uh, bridge going over the uh, canal and there is a bare-breasted Martian damsel <laughs> cavorting across the bridge. Uh, you know what, that's I, one way that we could end the first part of the show. We'll be uh, back with Alan Greenfield and I Jim knew Mosley. I never got a chance to talk the show would end. No, it's only the first half, Jim. You'll have a full hour to explain the meaning behind what you just told us. Coming up on the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Part two. Yes, Jim Mosley is still here. Amazingly enough, Jim is still here. And we're talking to Jim, who is the editor, publisher, chief cook, and bottle washer, especially the, the washing bottles. That's always pretty good. Of Saucer Smear. And he will now let you know how to learn more about it and how to get a copy. Jim, it's time yeah. for you to push your stuff. Push my stuff. Well, I live in a sunny, hurricane-prone Key West, Florida, and incidentally, we're uh, just approaching the beginning of the new hurricane season, and we're all looking forward to this. I have a P.O. box here, which is uh, Box 1709, Key West, Florida, 33041. And if people get in touch, uh, we'll send them a sample copy, and we will hope for a generous donation. Uh, we have 10 issues roughly each year, each of them uh, eight pages, uh, eight and a half by 11 pages, I would add, filled with the latest gossip and uh, information about UFOs and 14 phenomena and other matters of that ill. And you know what's interesting about it, this is one of the rare publications that is done with a typewriter. Yes, it is. It's not done with a computer. No, it's not. Because uh, now, I, I should add, I have a couple of people that send me pertinent information from the Internet on the subject of UFOs, etc. So I am no longer cut off from the rest of humanity in that regard. And now that uh, I am so blessed, it's as good as being on the Internet, I think, and uh, without all the hassle of actually doing the uh, research myself. So uh, 
from one of these gentlemen, I get about 200 or more items a month on the subjects that I'm interested in, and I simply choose what I want to use and what interests me the most, and the rest I send on to a friend in case he ever wants to read them. So that's what it is. We get hopefully the best of the best uh, with my wry sense of humor thrown in. And uh, what more can you ask for? That's right. That's right. Now, we were also talking to Alan Greenfield. And, of course, we could always mention those two books that you wrote, which are, of course, known as Secret Cipher of the UFO Knots and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. And before I ask you about something else you're working on now, how do we get a copy? Uh, you can get it from Amazon.com or any of the other um, non-brick-and-mortar uh, dealers on the Internet, and uh, you can order it through your local bookstore. It's uh, readily available. The uh, out-of-print edition of Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts is considered to be an antiquity item and is selling for an outrageously high price, none of which I get. And by the way, as just as a matter of form, because of differences with my publisher, neither Secret Cipher, the Euphonauts current edition, or Secret Rituals of the Men in Black current edition in any way give me any kind of financial remuneration. It just doesn't happen, but I think the books are important enough that I would encourage people to buy them anyway and make my publisher rich. We've all heard about the Mothman prophecies, but before the Mothman prophecies, the late Gray Barker wrote a book called The Silver Bridge with an introduction from Alan Greenfield. And Alan, you've done a new introduction to a new edition of the book. Tell us what this book is all about and why it is one of those unheralded treasures of the UFO field. Yeah, I can't tell you too much about the, the specifics as I really don't have any involvement with the publication other than I have written a new introduction and I understand some additional material is uh, being added to the book which uh, by Gray Barker which is related to the, uh, to the Silver Bridge. My feeling is this is the most underrated book um, ever published by a ufologist about ufology. It's about the, the way I compare it is this. There are two principal books on the Mothman mystery, which has now become sort of the reason for a for the annual Mothman convention, which gets a little bigger every year and uh, is altogether out of hand. But uh, John Keel wrote a book as a reporter, albeit a somewhat uh, tabloid reporter, uh, called The Mothman Prophecies, which eventually was made into a even more tabloid movie, if that isn't a contradiction in terms, although I, I love the movie myself. Personally. Well, Richard Gere played kind of a composite version of a couple of characters, which included John Keel by the name of, I think, John Klein or something like that. I thought the most interesting person uh, in the, actually um, uh, in the movie was the scientist who had been from Chicago who had decided to get out of ufology. I thought about that when we were talking about uh, Jacques Vallée in a, in a previous incarnation of this program, but he simply decided that it was 
not something he wanted to continue to be involved in. But in any case, the book is, uh, I would say, approaches it from a, quote, factual standpoint. I think The Silver Bridge by Gray Barker is misunderstood as as much of what Gray had to say about UFOs because it is essentially poetry. Uh, It is a poetic metaphor for what the UFO mystery is all about. And when I first read it in manuscript, I guess I was the um, number one booster of the book. I encouraged Gray, who had gotten a lot of criticism for the nature of the book, because it it, uh, is... Read as metaphor, I think it gets as close to the heart of the UFO mystery as anyone has ever gotten. And uh, the new introduction, I must say, I wrote the original in 1970. I was quite young. I was certainly not a developed writer at that point. It did not do justice to the text, but Gray was gracious enough to to publish it. I have had the opportunity to write a new 2008 introduction, which will appear in the book, which I think will probably set the tone a little better so that people's expectations won't be that this is a documentary any more than they knew too much about flying saucers or was a documentary, but rather a poetic metaphor for the heart of darkness in the UFO mystery. Let's talk about the heart of darkness in the UFO mystery. What is the darkness, the dark aspect? It seems to me that, first of all, let me talk a little bit about one perception I have of Gray. He was as much a folklorist as he was anything else. And West Virginia, where he was from, and where the Mothman cases and the the, uh, Flatwoods Monster and a lot of other stuff have come from, is also rich in much more mundane folklore, um, some of it involving little men and all sorts, uh, in the traditional sort of leprechaun type of uh, sense, and a lot of transplanted European Appalachian folk stories. I think to some extent Gray came out of that tradition, understood it, understood that a lot of things were were fictional but metaphors for something, some underlying reality, whether it be a, um, a truth as in Aesop's fables or whether it be something that is literally true but uh, ineffable in the literal sense, something that you simply cannot describe in a, in a direct sort of way. And um, I think that when the Mothman cases came along, Gray observed, as he had uh, privately uh, to me and to other people many times, that there was a definite relationship between eroticism and the appearance of some of the uh, more peculiar and bizarre uh, aspects of the UFO mystery and related things such as strange creatures, such as Mothman, such as the well-known odd contact story with Indrid Cold and, and other aspects of that period which uh, simply seem bizarre, but if you associate them with the fact that the, one of the key areas, the so-called TNT area, which I understand still exists, uh, with, as also being the teenage make-out place of the 1960s, and that in fact the, uh, the, the couple whose name I won't mention in this context apparently were, um, as is more or less graphically depicted in the movie, engaged in sexual activity at the time of the uh, appearance, which um, which so dramatically changed their lives and and scared the bejesus out of them. You're speaking um, of of sex and saucers, right? yes, sex in a very uh, roundabout but I, way. Yes, but I think no, 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 not so roundabout. I think that it's important to realize that 
what happens is that a certain type of eroticism, particularly the type that is, quote, forbidden, evokes in some sense, in the same sense that magic is intended to evoke certain beings, it evokes certain presences, and that all of those the C and D science fiction movies of the 50s that always start out with a couple on Lover's Lane who you know are going to get eaten by the creature that came from Alpha Centauri or whatever. It's always the same process that the sexuality provides the initial clue that Freddy is coming to chop you up. Does the sexuality attract events like this? I think dark sexuality does, forbidden sexuality does. Uh, and of course, forbidden sexuality by definition, I think, has a great deal to do with the times that you live in. What's, what's forbidden today is a good deal different than what was forbidden when, when I was a teenager. And uh, that, that, that feeling of engaging in the forbidden and the going down into the more primal psyche seems to attract whatever this whatever is. And how it manifests probably has a lot to do with the individual and, again, with the limitations of our brains. But the combination of being in isolation or relative isolation and doing the forbidden sexually seems to be a common denominator in some of the more bizarre cases that we are familiar with. Well, in the case of the Mothman situation, now... Yeah, often oh, in that All right. Situation. So I think the common perception that the Mothman preceded or provided kind of a banshee kind of warning to the impending collapse of the Silver Bridge. Well, but, it coincides with it. I think okay. that something that is uh, really important is that uh, post facto, a lot of people associated the two in, in a causal way. I'm not sure that it's causal. I'm not sure that the collapse of a bridge killing uh, many people and several others still unaccounted for to this day isn't the, the kind of primal, frightening death experience that would be the other side of the Eros, Thanatos, love and death sort of thing that will invoke or evoke this type of phenomena. Was the collapse of the bridge anything more than just one of those things that happens? No, it's very, very predictable, but I think the tragedy of it may have outside of time, I will see you in time being the, the, phrase, the operable phrase there, may have been part of the attraction that brought the cases and also brought the cases to a halt shortly thereafter. I think the town became a much more sober place. In fact, last year I was invited to speak at the Mothman Convention and I was going to speak on the, on the bridge, on the specifics of the bridge disaster because if you'll recall there was a very similar uh, disaster in uh, in Minnesota last I believe it was last year and I thought that it would be an appropriate topic and I was told by the organizer of the convention don't do that and I said why that's 40 some odd years ago and I'm certainly not going to say anything insensitive and he said well this is you know we want to talk about Mothman but the Silver Bridge collapse still in this little town is a very very bitter and traumatic memory to a lot of people and I said well I don't intend to be disrespectful but if you don't want me to talk about it I won't but uh, I think it was probably the most important thing that ever happened in that in that little town and uh, 
indeed, apparently, uh, it being a small town, there are still relatives, friends, and so forth that it is. But do we agree that the collapse of the bridge was not actually caused uh, by uh, the Mothman sightings, uh, that they're separate in a 3D uh, way of thinking. Oh yeah, that bridge, it was predictable that it was going to collapse. It was known as a swaying bridge. I mean, it was just a disaster waiting to happen for years, and I knew that at the time. I never... That's when you build I things never, with the lowest bidder. You know, you take the lowest bidder and the guy gives you the biggest bribe, and you build the bridge. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO. Reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at webtv.net gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us send your messages to news at theparacast.com that's news at theparacast.com and don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Let's build this. On the Paracast, we're talking to Alan Greenfield, cutting-edge thinker, philosopher on UFOs and the Paranormal, Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear. And I wanted to bring this up because we mentioned Gray Barker and what he did. Jim, Gray was one of your closest friends. Yes, indeed. Of course, Gray Barker is kind of a forgotten entity these days. What do you think people should take away from the life of Gray Barker in retrospect? Well, let me start by saying this. Uh, there is a reissue of the uh, Barker documentary, Whispers from Space, that was made by a man named Ralph Kuhn in 1995 or 6 and it was criticized uh, for being too long and this that and the other and finally Kuhn has come out with a improved version of that and with a 
new soundtrack, I'm told. However, Coon cannot be found. It's a long story, which, strangely enough, is in the forthcoming uh, Saucer Smear. The uh, revised edition of uh, that documentary is not available, although I, I received anonymously, probably from Coon, a copy of it, the DVD in the mail a few weeks ago. But moving on from that, there is an entirely different and separate Gray Barker documentary called uh, Shades of Gray, which is kind of cute play on words, I suppose. And that is being done by a young fellow named Bob Wilkinson, who is with public television, I would say, in uh, West Virginia somewhere. And uh, he's going to have his finished uh, in a few weeks, and it will also uh, be available on DVD. He came down to uh, Key West several weeks ago and did an interview with me, and he interviewed several of the other people that knew Gray well. But I think it's probably more realistic and less gooky, if I can use that term, than the uh, Ralph Kuhn documentary, and I'm looking forward to uh, seeing it uh, when it's available. So the point being, strangely, Gray Barker is not uh, completely uh, forgotten, but by some people in the field, I, I would imagine a lot of the younger uh, people uh, have barely heard of him or have very little interest in his uh, ravings as they have heard of him. But he died in 1984, which is quite a long time ago, and uh, it would be nice to think that anyone as prominent in the field as he was in his day would sort of live forever, but I don't think anyone does. I think Ray Palmer, uh, who was uh, in his day even uh, better known uh, than Gray Barker, I think he's pretty well forgotten, too, and it's rather a uh, sad thing. Uh, uh, I have memories of Gray Barker that are very... Uh, important to me and we spent uh, many weekends together I'd go down from uh, where I lived in North uh, Jersey and uh, visit him two or three times a year and he'd come up to uh, the New York area uh, maybe once or twice a year and that went on for a period of about 30 years so uh, I'll certainly remember him and I uh, hope others will too that's about the only way I can put it briefly now to expand on that though you and Gray perpetrated a few so-called notorious hoaxes in the field. What was the motivation allegedly, behind yes. that, allegedly? But you admitted to it. You copped to it. You copped a plea. You can't be arrested. The statute of limitations has expired. Why? Well, what happened with the Straits letter, which is the most famous one, I could go on into what that was, but, that, well, briefly, it was... Uh, a letter that uh, we wrote on State Department stationery, which had been pilfered from the State Department by a young lad that uh, uh, Gray Barker knew. And one evening we uh, became inebriated, which we often did, and we had uh, letterhead stationery from several different uh, government departments, not all of which I can remember offhand, but the only one of several letters that we wrote that night that became uh, infamous was the one uh, that we wrote to uh, George Adamski, and this was uh, signed by R.E. Straith, uh, Cultural Affairs Department of the uh, Department of State, 
And unfortunately, there was no cultural affairs division, and uh, we deliberately, in fact, made a, uh, as a further joke, uh, made a uh, uh, entity there that never existed. But the important thing was that uh, Adamski received the letter. It was uh, written in a friendly tone of this uh, State Department employee who was... Uh, in his private thinking, very much in tune with Adamski's uh, theories and uh, beliefs and uh, the things that he claimed that had happened to him. And the implication was in the letter that uh, even though we of the State Department cannot officially come forward and uh, endorse your claims uh, publicly, there are many of us here who are sympathetic, etc., etc. And so. Uh, one doesn't know whether uh, Dancy was clever enough to realize that this was a hoax, but I think it's fair to say that he didn't worry very much about it either way, because why should he? It was a marvelous thing that would uh, give more credence to his claims, and he uh, circulated it wildly and widely, as we had thought and expected that he would do. And uh, eventually some uh, gentlemen from the FBI came to him and uh, suggested strongly that he stop doing this and uh, of course that's made it even worse because it gave him uh, further reason to uh, hope or believe that it was genuine and uh, more of a a force to uh, keep circulating this uh, letter even more widely than before. So the thing worked out very well. Now that was in 1957, and I told Barker that uh, once you're gone, uh, presumably uh, I would outlive him because I was quite a few years younger than Barker was. I said, once you're no longer with us, I'm going to uh, confess to this. And he said, oh, why would you want to do that? And I said, well, you know, this is fun and all, but I mean, in the long run, we should let people know what the truth is, and uh, there are many reasons why it would be something that I would want to do. So, uh, Barker having died in December of uh, 84, in the first issue of Saucer News in January of 1985, I uh, had the detailed uh, confession of this whole thing. But I, I think that was a, a wonderful thing, and it, uh, the, the excuse that we had was to keep the pot boiling during a period of time that things seemed to be dying out a little bit and uh, keep interest focused on the UFO field and uh, encourage uh, the loud people such as Adamski to become louder and hopefully uh, something good would come out of it in the long run. So that, that was the uh, straight story and uh, I uh, hope uh, Barker will forgive me but one will never know for sure. Or maybe I'm you finished, will. yes. David, I, you've been I, particularly silent over well, I, old-timers. I wonder uh, why that might be, but uh, I, I tend to speak in short outbursts rather than long, <laughs> long... <laughs> no, I have enjoyed listening uh, to uh, Al because uh, we do talk on the phone very occasionally when I call him. Uh, he doesn't call me, but he has his own reasons, which cannot be explained at this time. So I haven't really listened to, let alone talked with, 
Al Greenfield in quite a period of time, and it's nice to hear the sound of his voice, endless though it may be. And uh, <laughs> so here we are. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! of the Rockwells. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. This is The Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. By the way, we're talking to Alan H. Greenfield and James W. Mosley. We very seldom refer to him in that fashion anymore. Just Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear. David, what do you think about all this? Well, I'm listening to these guys tell these stories about all of these players. And uh, it makes me realize that just like today, so much about discussion of this topic ends up centering on personalities and people who either from a hobbyist point of view or because of personal experiences, end up getting involved in, in discussions of these topics. It just makes me realize that ultimately, whenever we talk about things that affect us as humans, in the end, the thing that interests us most as humans are really other humans. And, and I kind of understand that in one way, but it, it gets me frustrated because something that I think is an underlying message here today is sort of an, an underbelly to this discussion is that when we talk about the paranormal, it, it's almost impossible to couch the discussion in an objective fashion because it, it appears in many ways that the interpretations, the motivations of the subjects involved in this, the human beings who view these things, end up manipulating what the thing actually is, or ends up affecting it in a way that you you can't... I mean, just think about the, the differences in the descriptions of, for example, people who have reportedly have interactions with beings. And you see this wide range of descriptions of what these things look like with all these little variations. And, you, and to some extent, you take into account the imperfections of, of human memory and the average person's ability to describe something in detail, especially when this something is encountered in a situation where there's a lot of fear going on, a lot of tension, uh, you know, when you're faced with the unknown, truly unknown. Basically, a lot of what you would normally consider to be your, uh, your ability to discern things sort of evaporates. But getting back to this issue of personalities, Alan and Jim, who do you feel today are perhaps the more legitimate people involved in this quagmire. And if you had to choose one or two of the people who you would really prefer just 
go away. Who would well, they let me uh, let me just briefly say something, and then Alan can uh, rave on. Uh, one one thing uh, about Saucer News, which was the old title, and Saucer Smear, the new title, I've been criticized for over the years uh, because I do get into personalities as much as I do into the uh, phenomenon itself, right. and certainly right. there is a link there, and uh, I find the people in the field to be almost as interesting as the objects that they claim to be seeing, and that gets down to the level of gossip, and uh, uh, some people have uh, criticized me for uh, that type of uh, reporting, but I find it's uh, fun, and uh, I uh, did get almost into a uh, libel suit in, in regard to James Randi at one point, but other than that, I've gotten away with this for over 50 years, and I, I still Whoa, 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 whoa. Almost it. into a libel suit with Randi? What happened? Oh, golly, that it would take a four-hour show all by itself. There was, many, many years ago, a so-called blackmail tape. Certainly, both of you must have heard of this. If you read Smear at all in the uh, early 90s, you would have read a great deal about it uh, therein. It's really too long to go into, and uh, I think uh, Randy's spies may be everywhere. But I uh, referred uh, to a tape that Randy himself made on his own telephone in which he recorded the voices of various alleged young men who allegedly were having sexually oriented conversations with him. This uh, tape that Randy made was ended up in the hands of the uh, police in Rumson, uh, New Jersey, where he lived, and from there it was provided to uh, Randy's enemies, which included Uri Geller and uh, some other people who came by the uh, police station one day, and the police hated Randy for various reasons, so they gladly gave these people a copy of this uh, tape. The tape uh, consists of uh, seven conversations, all of them relatively brief, between Randy and these young men. And uh, I will not infer or imply anything further than that about the context of, of those conversations. But the blackmail tape became a uh, legendary thing. It was circulated in Canada a great deal, funny enough, because Randy is from Canada. And uh, it involved uh, young magicians. There is a organization of young magicians that I can't remember the name of, but they were very interested in circulating this tape, and I, I got interested, and uh, I ended up with one very faint copy of the tape uh, because it was like a 20th generation copy, uh, but you could make it out. However, more interesting to me were the transcripts that were made from the tape because they were easy to read, and uh, I, I did notice that they followed uh, the transcript was a, uh, a proper rendition of the uh, uh, tape itself. And uh, so I referred to these matters in some length and other things having to do with uh, Randy's series of lawsuits with Uri Geller. There were six or seven of those suits, uh, all of which Randy claims to have won, except that he went broke uh, in his legal fees doing so. All of that uh, was a uh, topic in Smear for several issues.
issues uh, in detail, and uh, Randy became unhappy about it and uh, threatened to sue. Uh, his lawyer uh, wrote me uh, something to the effect that I could make a settlement of the intended suit for $5,000, and I did not choose to do so. And then a second letter came uh, offering to settle for $10,000, and I still <laughs> didn't uh, choose to do so. And uh, I did backtrack on some of the comments that I'd made in Smear and uh, cleared up some things, perhaps to Randy's satisfaction, or perhaps he felt that the uh, intended suit would uh, be uh, more embarrassing no. to him than to me, and uh, he uh, backed uh, off. Excuse me? Well, this is just going really way off. We're, we're, we're <laughs> way off the cliff here. Well, well, yes, indeed, but didn't you ask me about that? Okay, Randy? well, that we've, no, we've Gene did. It. It's all Gene's fault. That's right. It's always my fault. Remember that. Whenever we well, go off the cliff, Gene does it. If we're going to stay on the cliff, it's David. Okay, no, I mean, it was, it's an interesting thing about how that just kind of struck a chord, and I wanted to see where that led to. But let's now look at the current figures in the UFO field. I don't think they can sue a, a podcast or whatever this they is. Can but oh, who cares? Yeah, no, they, they can. And, and, and quite frankly, as far as Randy goes, uh, I personally have this weird uh, stance about him where I appreciate a skeptical view, but I think he's every bit as fundamentalist in his approach oh, there's no as most doe-eyed believers. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean... You know, Randy is really ultimately, to me, almost he, he neutralizes himself. One other he thing, his, yeah. One other thing that I, I should mention that is slightly less controversial. Uh, for about ten years, the uh, Randy Foundation, which is here in Florida, uh, has had a standing uh, one million dollar offer yeah, yeah. to anyone that can come forward with proof of the paranormal. And no one has uh, successfully done that, and because of the way it's rigged, uh, no one ever will. But interestingly, uh, Randy has uh, given out the news on his uh, website and elsewhere yeah. that in another two years, the uh, offer will end. Uh, are you aware right. of that? Yeah, uh, that, that, was, that was announced a while ago. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the interesting thing there is he implies that when the uh, uh, money is no longer being offered to people for a proof of the paranormal, they're going to use it for other purposes, which I could assume might include refurbishing their headquarters. I, I have no idea. But go on. Well, no, getting back to uh, personalities today that either of you would say, okay, these are credible people that have something to offer a value to the conversation about these topics versus the people now who you feel are should just be forgotten dismissed so uh, asking both you, uh, Jim you and you Alan to give me give us examples of perhaps two people in either bucket well, or even one person i would say paul kimball is the most important rising star in my opinion, in, in the UFO field, and he's been on your show, I know. Mm -hmm. And uh, he seems to be one of the few, though he does talk a lot, as we all do, but he has sane views and uh, has a good sense of humor and 
Gus around a lot. He's a documentary filmmaker and uh, is very visible. I, uh, he's a young fellow, I assume, and I think he will make a uh, permanent mark on the field, uh, whereas his uh, uncle, uh, Stan Friedman, is much more dogmatic and much more rigid in his views and uh, to me not as uh, important a figure although he's better known that would be my comment on that okay how about you alan well gee i'm i'll just say briefly Uh, i I think scott corrales is uh, outstanding and i also wanted to pick somebody who had um, media access and i was uh, because i think that's very important in um, in shaping opinion and i would pick Mm -hmm. adam go rightly i thought about larry king he's doing a lot of good stuff on on ufos who larry king Oh, oh, Larry King. You know, Larry King. No, no, I didn't hear what you said. Okay. Two, I would get rid of Randy because of of the aforementioned. He's a fundamentalist, and fundamentalists uh, have no place in anything that is in any sense scientific, and Stanton Friedman for the same reason. Now, they may not consider themselves two peas in a pod. I do. Stanton Friedman in the same pod. Uh, Uh, Fundamentalism is fundamentalism. Belief is belief. I believe in nothing. I investigate, I think about, I try to make sense out of, but I demand that there be more than an underlying belief and then attempting to reinforce that belief through looking through the uh, the lens of that belief. It just uh, uh, that's a, people that's that a very, are utterly useless in my opinion. That's a very interesting uh, comparison and I think it's uh, quite uh, valid. Stanton, Friedman and Randy, I think they would both sue you if, if, if they knew that you said that. <laughs> well, I think they'll be suing us real soon because Stanton listens to the show. I'm kidding. Yes, I hope so. He doesn't well, no, have time to listen. Listening is not his forte. Well, I, I think that it's probably fair to say that Friedman does indeed have a, a set of uh, theories that he is uh, entrenched and invested in, and he tends to protect them. I know that when we've had him on the show, uh, we've tried to engage him in conversations that move us away from things that seem to be obvious into more esoteric realms, and he, he's very resistant. And to some degree, I, I can understand that uh, in his case. I mean, he, he basically is one of the few people who has sort of committed to this as a full-time endeavor. And, and I wonder about that, by the way. I wonder about anybody who commits to this topic as a full-time endeavor. It makes me, makes me wonder about their motives. His motive is to earn a living. Uh, I think that would be... Uh, quite evident there. Uh, while I have a moment to speak here, uh, I think Al will remember this as well as I do. Uh, what year was your convention for the National UFO Conference? Around 1970? I, I've held two, but the... Uh, the, the well, one, the first one, then. first one was around 1973. All right. And my... Uh, are you sure 73? Well, well, then my daughter... No, no, uh, no. I mean, if you mean the National UFO Conference that year, it was either 72, 73. I don't know. The, the early okay. 70s are a blur to me for some reason. All right. Well, uh, I think it was a 70 or earlier, but my daughter was just uh, under 10 at that time. And I, I think this is my favorite Stanton Friedman story. He he was the star speaker at your convention, Al. You'll, you'll remember this. And you had a time limit on the hall that we had to be out I think by 11 o'clock or something and Friedman if I remember I 
right, was he the only speaker or was he the last speaker? But anyway, he was going on and on endlessly. And we were younger then, and we were uh, actually afraid of this very important figure in the uh, UFO field who had come all the way from wherever to speak for us, the mere mortals in uh, in Atlanta. And we wondered how the heck we were going to get him to stop talking. And uh, somebody had the idea, uh, since my daughter was little and cute at that time, she is no longer little or cute, but that's another very long story. Oh, wow. Anyhow, anyhow, so we thought, wouldn't it be nice to send her up to the podium because none of us dared go up and interrupt this great uh, guru. And uh, we gave her a little note, which I think uh, said, uh, Uncle Stan, I am just a little girl and I am getting tired and want to go to bed. Would you please stop talking? Something like that. It was cute and intended to be cute. And the thought was that she would (laughs) hand this to Friedman, and he would pause and read it out loud, and the audience would see that it was cute, and then he would find some way of wrapping it up. So she gave this note to Stanton Friedman, and he stopped talking for just an instant and read it to himself and went right on exactly as if he had not received it. And it did not stop him, and it didn't even slow him down. But eventually he did stop because it's many years later, and I'm sure that he's not still in the same hall giving the same speech. But that's well, He's giving the same speech in other halls. Hey listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. We're yeah. talking to Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, and Alan Greenfield, and we have only one more segment before we have to send them on their way. Okay, so we know the people that you like. Okay, here's the situation. Today, ufology in the 21st century, 2008, when the show is being heard, although people in 2009 might still be listening to it, we hope, and that is... What can be done today to get the UFO field off dead center? Because it looks like we're talking about the same arguments that we had 40 years ago. If you read Major Donald Kehoe's The Flying Saucer Conspiracy and compare that to anybody, anybody 
who talks about disclosure, and you think of the same people. Um, Alan. Okay, I'll go for that. First of all, I, I don't necessarily, with respect, share your opinion of that. I think we are on um, a major upswing in terms of public interest. Now, if you're saying that the research tools that are being used are very much the same, as a general principle, I would agree with that. However, I do think that new tools have been introduced in the last few years that seem to be in the hands of people who are not traditional, quote, ufologists, unquote. I can use the example I know best simply because it, because it's one that I have something to do with, which is the, the notion of there being a cipher which is in use between human beings, certain human beings and whatever the source of the UFO phenomenon is, and that in turn, if one has a knowledge of this, one can predict major UFO cases. Next month, I've decided after years of dealing with this, there's a, some sort of an online convention on June 20th. You may know more about it than me. I said I would appear but on but by phone, but I have little information about it. As you know, it doesn't take too much to get me talking, so I said I would give a lecture and I'll just I'll wing it. But I'm going to make five predictions of specific dates, specific locations, based on use of the cipher. And we'll see. I mean, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and uh, we'll see if, uh, in fact, what I have known privately and hope that people would work out on their own, predictability is one of the things that we've lacked all along. And if, in fact, I have found a methodology whereby we can predict the location of, of cases, well, first of all, it shows that the cipher, for whatever reason, has a certain validity. But secondly, it presents the opportunity to be on hand with the appropriate equipment in order well, to well. investigate in detail what it is that's actually going on. All right, I'm not going to let you get away with that one, Alan. You're here on the show now. You're here on a show where people who are interested in this topic in a serious way have heard you say this before. I've heard you say it before. Now, give us an example, if you would, pretty please, with sugar on top. And molasses Let's and, and whipped cream. No, 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 no. Sure. Uh, you're saying you have a cipher. You're saying you, you potentially can predict when there will be an incident. Let's go. It, here we are in the Paracast. You're one of our favorite guests. You've brought this up. Now, Tochasaf and Tish, my friend. What's the story? We, we don't respond to Yiddish questions on the air. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't a Yiddish question. It was a Yiddish saying. Ass on the table. Let's go. You say you've got a methodology. It sounds like Yiddish. Well, yeah, okay. no, it does. It does. Okay, I, I don't want to give away the t the, the talk that I'm giving. I talk, but I will give you one of them. Okay, Thank this you. is one yes. that I will use on the program. And if they, excuse me, the convention. This is where I start to sound like Mosley about computers. You know, the conventions oh. ought to be yeah. in person. They should be rubbing up. I predict that there will be a major UFO sighting and or landing on July 3rd, 2008 in Houston, Texas. Now, wow. the reasons really? for the prediction. Wait, wait, wait. July 3rd, um, 2008, Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. I'm writing that down. All right, that'll be in smear. 
That, uh, once yeah, you won't even review my books to give anything of the rationales for it, but you'll put that one in there. And yeah, well, once it's a smear, it, it's etched in stone, and you can't change it. You know. Well, you better bring it out before July third. I well, sure will. Okay, that. All right. So, so tell us. Criswell predicts July third, two thousand and eight, Houston, Texas, major UFO case. All right. I love it. Okay, what leads you to believe that this is going to happen? A serious... Finally, I'm wide awake. You know that? <laughs> it's only taken an hour and 45 minutes to, to waken Jim, but now it's happened. Go ahead. Alan, before you say anything, Jim, you're almost like the Hunter Thompson of the UFO realm. Take it as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> considering that Hunter Thompson, <laughs> never mind. He oh, don't even, don't even go there, man. I, 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 love, I love that guy. Anyway, go ahead, Al. When do I get to plug my name and address? <laughs> well, I can still sell something because as of okay. July 4th, I predict poverty, <laughs> yes, immunity. You're changing your residence on July 4th. It's something that I would predict. <laughs> no, I hope not. I may be having to, though. No, I sell all kinds of books, so you don't have to buy mine. I don't get paid for mine anyway, so it's no loss. But I, but I wanted people to use the cipher and predict for themselves, and that just has not happened, or if it's happened, nobody's bothered to get back to me with it, except anecdotally. So I decided, okay, I'll make five at this convention. It's easy to do. What you do is you take previous cases that have some relationship, a letter, a word. You have, there's a little intuitive thing to it, but it works 85 to 95% of the time just from my informal keeping accounts over the last 15 years since I uh, discovered this. And uh, so I have great confidence in it, and I base it on some clues using the cipher involved in cases in southern Arizona, one of which turned out to be a hoax. That is immaterial to me, no pun intended. Uh, to, it's, it's like I believe that the people in the field are part of the phenomenon in a certain sense. So, you know, the, and I reached that conclusion based on the Wanakew Reservoir case, but uh, Gene and I have a different perspective than uh, you do, Jim, on that. Uh, Gene and I distinctly remember something that you don't, so somewhat like the meeting with, with uh, Dr. Valet. And, uh, what think, is it about the Wanakew uh, sighting that you find? I'll let Gene tell you. I'm sure he remembers. He told me. I he did. With you I don't remember night. what you're talking about. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> then perhaps I should fade into oblivion on this one. Uh, Gene told me, and I still have the letter in which he told me, that the night before the Wanaku cases broke, you were uh, uh, a bit uh, on the happy side and decided to start a UFO wave by making a phone call to a local police department at random somewhere in New Jersey. I presume this is when you were living in Fort Lee. And You're speaking of me, Jim Mosley. I did this. Yes, go on. Yes, yes. According to Eugene Steinberg, then of Brooklyn, New York, which is a city near Manhattan, but that's not important right now. In a manner of speaking, of course. Yes, in a man. Brooklyn was never important at any time. Gangs of New York says, that, well, that's not important right now. What is important? How about the Navy Yards? Where is your patriotism? 
But what is important is Gene said you made a call arbitrarily. You just looked through the various local phone directories to the Wanaki Police Department. I am dimly remembering this now. And yeah, that's wonderful because I, I'm a UFO not. Story, made up a UFO story right. and told it to them anonymously. And, hung, and in those days, your phone was not, you know, automatically didn't give a readout on who was calling. Hung up, and the next day, the Wanaki flap emerged. And not only that, but Gene maintained that you had no memory of having done this. And I thought, yes, isn't uh-huh. that amazing? The memory has been blotted out completely. Well, okay. We're talking well, over everybody. Let's kind of calm it down here. Go ahead. Yes, well, my memory has been blotted out. Uh, I have to admit that. Uh, I'm not admitting to having done it. I'm admitting that the memory of it is completely blotted out. And I will accept that because I think that that's, it's, it's two different people that I take uh, at their word, but they were in the same room and they have a totally different memory and yet uh, Gene, none, none did, of us will, none of us will deny that in fact Gene, there was. did you tell this to Al? Yes, apparently I told him in a letter. I do recall mm. mentioning it in some fashion. At that time, we weren't talking every day on a telephone because when you called from Brooklyn, New York to Atlanta, Georgia, we're talking about a lot of money, you know, in, in 1960 yes, you did it by letter, but That's you're right. saying that you recall my having done this? Were of you course. there? Or? I may have actually been there when you did this, yes. Either that or you called me and said, ha, 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 look what I just did. My memory of that is not that I'm calling anyone a liar because you can't do that, but I uh, can well, you only You could, say, but we wouldn't agree with you. Uh, that's correct. Uh, my memory has been, it's just like Candy Jones's memory of all the things that she did when she was a, a secret agent. And she told me personally because uh, I was on her uh, radio show quite a lot after Long John died, and I asked her about that book. Uh, what was the name of it? Uh, the book? The Control anyway, of Candy she, Jones. Ah, yes, yes. And she said, Jim, I can't say that it never happened. All I can say is that I have absolutely no memory of it whatsoever. And I think she was trying to tell me in her own quaint, roundabout way that it didn't happen, but I, I might be wrong about that. Well, human memory is fallible, and of course that's true with all of us. I mean, uh, more so with Jim, of course. Yeah. was not in Chicago with us, you know. I mean, it's it, and we all, you know, don't recall an incident that. In fact, that that whole thing with with Friedman going on and on. I've seen Friedman go on and on a lot of times. But the thing with Betty, I'd completely forgotten until you reminded me of it. So, it can't happen. I mean, I'm. Just not like that particular incident stakes my entire notion that the people involved in the field are not men in white coats behind uh, behind a glass shield. Let's cut to the chase here. We only have a few minutes left. I have a friend who lives in Houston, Texas, and he runs a web hosting company, and one of the web hosts we deal with is his company. Should I tell him, because he's interested in the paranormal, by the way, and the power cast, that he should be on the lookout for something happening in early July of this year. Yeah, I think he should also check the local media that day as well. I mean, if you mean should he be out with binoculars, sure, why not? But, Cameras, you know, I don't, whatever. I don't know, be, but certainly check the media that, you know, that within the 24 hours before and after. But I, excuse me, gentlemen, I, I am now on a new ego trip. I am the father 
of the Wanakee flap. Is that correct? That's that Dad. Correct. Yeah. Listen, Dad, before you go on, would yeah. you tell our listeners where they can get more information about Saucer Smear? Well, uh, they'll never read about my involvement with the uh, Wanakee flap, unfortunately. But if they are interested in other peculiar cases, more recent mostly, they can write to uh, Saucer Smear, that's S-M-E-A-R, at uh, P.O. Box 1709, Key West, Florida, 33041. Alan, you have things to sell. Yes, I, uh, I'm in the book business, and uh, the easiest ways to get in touch with me are as follows. Go to Google on the Internet or any other good search engine and put in my name, Alan, A-L-L-E-N, Greenfield, G-R-E-E-N-F-I-E-L-D, and up I will pop. Usually my website will pop up first, or write me if you're interested in a variety of books and manuscripts and rare things on UFOs, the occult, etc. at bishop171 at gmail.com that's bishop171 at gmail.com Ladies and gentlemen, and did you know yeah. that there are 1,830,000 listings on Google for Alan Greenfield? Yes, <laughs> I've seen to it. And you wrote all but three or four, right? 999,000 of them. No, the truth is, I, uh, really, it amazes me. I guess it's just being on the Internet as long as I have, you know. It just, uh, I discover new ones. If you go, you know, down the pages where it starts to talk about Thomas Allen Greenfield or this, you still find you know, interviews that I did when I was in political radical circles, which I just assume not be up there. <laughs> yeah, nothing disappears on the Internet. However, what is truly remarkable are how many listings there are for James W. Mosley. Oh, yes. He doesn't even have a computer, and yet he does have a considerable um, number of listings on the Internet. We only have a moment left. Let me tell you this, okay? For James W. Mosley, there are 1,130,000 listings. I doubt that. But That's uh, true. On Google. No, no, no. no. It's, it's your show. If you say that. Uh, uh, if he just pulled it up, there's uh, Google okay. has a, it shows how many listings there are. That's right. Oh, no, no. Gentlemen, gentlemen, as the technologists here, I have to remind you all that if you don't insert double quotation marks around the two names, for example, Alan, if I put double quotation marks around Alan Greenfield, the actual number of hits is 2,120. Oh, I'm devastated. Um, yeah, that's, Jim Mosley at 661. Be. All right. There so, you go. Five you. more, and Jim is the Antichrist. Excellent. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, on that note, there's still 24,600. Can, can we thank Tim Beckley for being the quietest of I think uh, we can so thank quiet. him. I think we can thank him for not being here. Oh, jeez. Well, he's sick. Yes, he yeah. is. And after he hears this show, he will be sicker. And I want to thank Jim Mosley, editor of Saucer Smear, and Alan Greenfield, author of two intriguing UFO-related books that will get you thinking. And they're called Secret Cipher of UFO Knots or UFO Knots and Secret Rituals of the Men in Black. Thank you both so much for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thank you. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.